WBUR Podcast, Boston. Sit back, close your eyes, imagine a big city on a river overflowing with life. A place where people are, are dancing, uh, where music is just swirling through the air in the forms of, of Congo jazz and trumpets, where you have art lining the streets. It's just a place that was ready to emerge from a dark history. It was, it was alive. This is Brenton Zola, a writer, thinker, and creator with deep Congolese roots. The place he's describing is no figment of the imagination. It's Leopoldville. And in 1960, it was the capital of the Belgian colony of Congo. That year was a turning point for the entire continent, a year of liberation. The year 1960 was known as the Year of Africa, and that is because 17 African nations actually all declared their independence in one single year. Brenton, was that before you were born? Ha! Oh, Lord. Yes, that is significantly before I was born. Nevertheless, Brenton's fascination has led him to begin working on a book about this chapter of Congo's history. And he says back then, Leopoldville was bubbling with life and hope that Congo would soon become one of Africa's free democratic republics. Now, it usually takes some kind of spark for those embers of hope to catch fire. Sometimes that can be one bold individual. But at that time, Congo had two, Patrice Lumumba and André Blouin, a dynamic pair that would transform the entire nation and inspire people for generations to come. I've always been fascinated by First of all, people who are able to stir the emotions of and, and sort of capture the imagination, the zeitgeist of their time. And that in the case of Lumumba and Bluin specifically, that they could take on these really large responsibilities, knowing like how dangerous it was, knowing how many large forces were against them, and still have the willingness and drive to follow through on their visions for a better future. Now imagine that hope dashed on purpose by an outside actor. You know, when we look at the problems of Congo now, from exploitation in the mining industry to animal conservation to violence in in the eastern part of the Congo with rebel militias, a lot of these are a fallout of what happened in 1960. And so by the time you start really feeling that fallout, people have forgotten. Eventually, Brenton says, that era of hope and freedom disappeared from our collective memory and was replaced with a much simpler notion, one of suffering. And so I want to bring this story to people because I want to show them that not only could the future have been different, but it was on the path of being different. And we basically thwarted that path. And so that the future that we have or the present that we have now is in no way inevitable and that there's always a new story that can be written if we understand how we got here to begin with. Welcome to Last Scene, a show about people, places, and things that have gone missing, and whether or not they can or even should be found. From WBUR, Boston's NPR station, I'm Nora Sachs. Today you're going to hear a different kind of story, more of a lyrical essay featuring a traditional style of storytelling from Central and West Africa. Brenton will be playing the role of the griot, a figure who acts as a bridge between your world and the world of story, a world of narrative, music, and myth. 
In this oral tradition, a griot is often accompanied by a chorus, so you'll hear chants, songs, and vocal accompaniment too. Now, Brenton Zola transports us to Africa's lost year of hope. This is episode four. It was the summer of 1884. A man with a long silver beard sat at a clawfoot table. His name was Leopold II, King of the Belgians. Other European kings took seats around him. He looked around the table and locked eyes with each king. He declared that he wanted to control a new land his men had explored. It was called Congo, and he wanted it for himself as a private citizen. Nobody knew what lay in Africa's heart. Many still don't. Leopold was the only king with access to Central Africa. The other kings didn't understand what he was asking for. They were focused on grabbing other parts of the continent. He was desperate to join their ranks, earn their respect. He needed Congo. His fellow kings spoke. They told him that they were willing to give him this Congo on one condition. He needed to help its people prosper. Leopold gave a broad smile and agreed. The statesman applauded with self-satisfaction. Congo was now his, a land so large it could fit half of Western Europe. He wanted some part of the world where he could reign supreme and where he could make a lot of money. That's Adam Hochschild, historian and modern Congo expert. He bamboozled first the United States and then all the major nations of Europe into recognizing this vast territory as his personal possession. Leopold II ruled Congo as a personal colony for over two decades. He focused on a search for prosperity, and he found it. Off in the Congo jungle, a Congolese woman in a floral waist wrap sat in the bush. She was chained to someone next to her. In her left hand, she held a large green vine that snaked along the ground. In her right, she had a large knife. She swung the knife and sliced the vine open. A milky substance erupted. It brought her to her knees. It covered her head, arms, and chest. Then, it hardened. Belton soldiers came and scraped the hardened substance off of her. They took some of her hair and skin with it. She became delirious, fell to the ground. At that point, the soldiers took her away. What did they scrape off? Latex. It would be turned into rubber, a new material the world couldn't get enough of. There was a huge demand for rubber in industry, and the world was industrializing at that point, and you need rubber for belts and machinery and factories and so forth. But when you plant a bunch of rubber trees, it can take 15 years or so before they grow to maturity, and you're able to harvest the rubber from them. So the people who could really make a killing were those who owned territory where rubber grew wild. And no one had more of that than King Leopold in the great Congolese rainforest. So Leopold imposed a rubber quota on all Congolese. If they didn't harvest enough, soldiers would take them away, just like the woman in the floral waist wrap. They brought her to a tree stump and laid out her right arm. 
a soldier lifted his knife and dropped it down on her wrist. Her hand fell into a woven basket. It joined many others. And things carried on like this. For days, months, years. This was the rubber trade that made Leopold a billionaire in today's dollars. That powered automobiles on Fifth Avenue. That kept the unknowing world moving. The global media eventually exposed Leopold's atrocities. The likes of Mark Twain and Arthur Conan Doyle lambasted him. The international community even coined a term for his actions, crimes against humanity. But the damage was done. So it was an extremely brutal uh, system that produced a a Holocaust-sized death toll. Uh, The best estimates are that the population of this territory shrank by about 50%, or about 10 million people, between around 1880 and around 1920. 10 million people. From famine, disease, separation, and violence. The world wanted justice. But just a year after he was exposed, Leopold died of a stroke in his glittering palace. From that moment of applause at the clawfoot table up until his very last day, everyone gave him a hand. Nearly two decades after Leopold died, the Belgian government still exploited Congo. Few Congolese had hope of improving their lives. Except one boy. No one knows why Elias was given his particular name. Some say his tribe was inferior. Others say that someone saw a shooting star at his birth. A bad omen. However it originated, Elias Okita Sombo's name meant the heir of the cursed. But Elias believed in the power to change his destiny. The earth gave him a bellowing voice that carried through space. It gave him a sharp mind that gathered knowledge like a glittering nebula. Every night, he stood in the middle of his small village. He recounted tales of Congo's dazzling past. And in spite of themselves, the Congolese around him started to dream. He wanted these dreams for all Congolese. So as a teenager, he hopped on a train to the city. He was born Elias Okita Sombo, but he gave himself a new name. The first meant noble, the last, the crowd. His name was Patrice Lumumba. On the other side of the Congo River, there was a 17-year-old girl. She was climbing a high stone wall. It was the middle of the night. The Gothic architecture of her Catholic orphanage lay behind her. As she reached the top, she cut herself on the glass shards that lay on the wall. Her blood dripped down the wall. She looked to her right and she saw two friends that she was supposed to meet. They trembled. She shouted, this is the hour of our liberation. 20 feet down, More jagged shards awaited them at the base of the wall. Her companions whimpered, but she shoved them into the night. Andre was this girl's name. 
She had no idea of the future for the Matisse girls she pushed to freedom. Matisse meant mixed, half-breed, a child of sin. André Blouin was born to a 14-year-old African mother and a 41-year-old European father. She wasn't an orphan. She was ripped from the arms of her mother and thrown into a so-called orphanage to be with her own kind. But she was done hiding. She took a long breath and plunged into the abyss after her friends. Three pairs of bloody footprints walked into the night. Patrice Lumumba, the heir of the cursed, grew up in a rapidly changing world. This world was hungry for gold, diamonds, copper, and more, which Congo had. If Congo's mineral riches were measured in the lifespan of our universe, it would take thousands to capture its bounty. It's estimated that to this day, Congo has 26 trillion, with a T, US dollars in untapped minerals. On the heels of World War II, the Congolese mining industry exploded. Most of its cities became mining cities. There was new opportunity for people like Patrice Lumumba. But the Belgians ensured that there wasn't too much. Like most Congolese, Patrice Lumumba only made it through the fourth grade. There was no university in the nation. So the idea that someone could intellectually match Europeans was preposterous. But Lumumba believed it. By day, he was a mailman. By night, a student. After his classes, he'd walk around the slums trying to solve problems. Everyone called him the knowledge magician. But Lumumba's drive also got him in trouble. He felt underpaid. So to cover his learning expenses, he embezzled some money. He intended to pay it back, but his debts caught up with him. He earned a ticket to jail. His time in jail was the match that lit the bonfire of revolution. He saw the brutal treatment of his fellow inmates, how they ate nothing but dry chikwanga bread, how guards stuffed them in tiny cells. This incensed him. He wanted to do something. A couple years later, he got out. It was then that Lumumba committed himself to changing Congo's future. For the Métis orphan André Blouin, tragedy was the match that lit her fire. After escaping the orphanage, she started a family. Her life was coming together. But one day in 1944, her toddler got malaria. So one day he was taken to hospital and uh, doctors saw that his case was very serious. That's Eve Blouin, one of André's daughters. Eve wasn't yet born at the time, but she knows the story well. André brought her son to a French colonial hospital. His condition continued to decline. She completely freaked out, as you can imagine, and tried to find the quinine that was the only cure for what uh, her son had. And apparently, you could only have access to this drug if you had a card. And it was not given to anyone with African blood. André pleaded that her son was three-quarters European. Doctors still refused. Her son died. She was never the same. After his death, André moved to Paris. In Paris, she saw the Black Renaissance. Writers like James Baldwin lit up French cafes late into the night. 
black luminaries discussed African independence. Andre thought about her young son. She decided to join the fight. She remade herself into a revolutionary. She wanted to build an Africa where all races were equal, where children didn't die based on the blood that flowed through them, where women had rights. She became a woman of fire, bold, indefatigable. In the 50s, she moved to Guinea, where her husband worked. André believed that she could help lead Guinea to independence from the French. To her, the key was galvanizing rural Africans. She organized a caravan of trucks to drive to the remote parts of Guinea. They'd play music through loudspeakers. They'd gather people in a clearing to hear her message. Now, this may seem a bit ordinary today, but for rural villagers, this was shocking. Of course, it's hard for you to imagine the way it was, but imagine people living in the bush. No electricity, no telephone, no nothing. And suddenly they see a caravan of trucks. The trucks carried their own supply of electricity and waded through all manner of terrain. Uh, crossing those jungles, those rivers, and it, 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 just to reach the little village that was hiding under baobab tree or God knows what. It was unbelievable. But she did it. Thousands of men gathered in awe. But André was particularly keen on women's empowerment. She wanted the women of the village to hear her speech. She would ask all these men to bring along with them their wives, their daughters, their mothers, whoever. She would speak about education, health care, and equal voting rights. People could not believe that this woman, half white, half black, she did such an impression on, on all these women that it was like a tidal wave, literally. Guinea went on to become the first African nation to gain independence. André was at the heart of the movement. She rallied so many women in Guinea electoral campaign that they wanted her to do the same in Congo. André took all of her lessons to the heart of Africa. That's after this. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Leopoldville was Congo's capital. And in the 1950s, it was a bustling metropolis. There were trendy fashion boutiques and swanky jazz bars. There were Humphrey Bogart films. It even boasted the world's first electric bus. But behind all the glitz, a revolutionary fervor was brewing. Lumumba was sparking that fervor. He went door to door to talk to Congolese about possibilities for the nation. He spoke to them in bars, in restaurants. Anywhere he could catch an ear, he did. He founded Congo's fastest-growing and most diverse political party, 
and his efforts got him on the airwaves. Like André Blouin, he was a gifted speaker. And with radio, everyone could hear his message. But while Lumumba's voice boomed through the airwaves, a cold world loomed behind him. Nothing would have a greater impact on 1950s Congo than the Cold War. Congo's natural resources once again played a pivotal role. Here's more from our trusty historian, Adam Hochschild. No longer were ivory and rubber the chief sources of wealth, but uh, palm oil, uranium, the uranium for the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs came from there. You know, the Americans and Belgians wanted this stuff for themselves, for their corporations. Uh, they thought of Africa as sort of their possession. The U.S. Army couldn't have built atomic bombs without Congo's uniquely rich uranium. They couldn't afford to lose control of Congo's resources. They didn't want the Soviets to get any part of it. They created the Central Intelligence Agency. Its founding purpose was to monitor governments and pursue American interests. But trying to protect American interests while thwarting the Soviets led to extreme actions. The CIA spent the 1950s engaging in propaganda, paramilitary action, and even assassination. But neither the cursed boy, now man, nor the orphan girl, now woman, let the Cold War stop their work. Just as in Guinea, André Blouin formed a coalition of tens of thousands of women to advocate for independence. And by 1959, the roar of freedom was deafening. It was at that point that Lumumba and Blouin met at a dinner party. Lumumba's body still bore scars from his time in prison. But he welcomed André with his warm smile and tireless laugh. In André's own words, Lumumba was brave and sincere. Lumumba was like her little brother. She would spend a lot of time with Lumumba. The heir of the cursed and Matisse, former orphan, decided to combine their flames. He would only trust her to the point that the media had a nickname for this uh, collaboration. Team Lumum Bluin. They had Bluin's strategy and Lumumba's charisma. They inspired Congolese to lead strikes and demonstrations throughout Leopoldville. They worried the Belgians. The momentum came to a head. In late 1959, the governor of Leopoldville tried to prevent a large demonstration at a YMCA sports field. The demonstrators became frustrated and then enraged. A massive riot broke out. Congolese attacked Belgian soldiers. Belgian soldiers opened fire in response. Dozens of Congolese lost their lives. The nation was spiraling out of control. Fast. The reigning king of Belgium saw the writing on the wall. He was a young, quiet man named Baudouin, Leopold's great-grandnephew. King Baudouin got on the radio. He announced that there would be independence. Most people thought it would take a few years, maybe more, to actually materialize. But that is not how the history goes. In January 1960, just two months later, he organized a Belgian-Congo roundtable conference. All of the top political actors from both nations flew to Brussels. There, 
Lumumba sat at a large table, staring at Belgium's leaders. Congos, too. Hundreds of aides sat around the room. Journalists in stadium seats waited with bated breath. Perhaps the heir of the cursed felt Leopold's ghost. He leaned forward into the microphone in front of him. Then, he made a bold move. He asked the Belgians to grant independence in four months. The Belgian officials were flabbergasted. He never thought they would actually agree to such a thing. But the Belgians were under a lot of pressure. Congo was falling apart. Every major newspaper was ready to report their response. They did not agree to four months. But they did agree to six. The stage was set. June 29th, 1960. The Eve of Independence. A new song dominates the airwaves. Vive le Congo. It's by a white American trio named the Colwell Brothers. The Colwell Brothers were naive young musicians. Congo's top politicians brought them to help unite the country through music. They got to play for a special audience. We did a performance in a theater to Patrice Lumumba and his cabinet. That's Paul Colwell. He's one of the brothers. And we're a country and Western kind of performers, but we also included world music. We had our, our Western gear, our cowboy hats, and that's where we launched our song called Vive Le Congo. The Cowell Brothers song captured the spirit of optimism in the nation. It was a national sensation. And by this point in mid-1960, six African nations had declared their independence. Patrice Emery Lumumba had inspired them. Now, all eyes were on Congo. On him. For six months, Lumumba had campaigned for the prime minister post. Of course, he leaned on André Blouin. They caravaned throughout the whole country. It was joyous, raucous. But now, with their goal so close, things were tense. The following day. Baudouin stands before hundreds of dignitaries. Congolese politicians, Belgian ministers, and international press are all present. It's the Independence Congress in Leopoldville. Through the airwaves, the whole world listens. Baudouin announces Patrice Lumumba as Congo's first prime minister. The applause is deafening. He quickly speaks over the noise. Constitue l'aboutissement de l'œuvre conçue par le génie du roi Léopold II. Did you catch that? Baudouin asks the audience to honor the man who created an opportunity for humanitarian work in Congo, the genius Léopold II. When he finishes, Lumumba rises. He is not scheduled to speak. The room falls silent. Lumumba approaches the podium with a small cache of papers. Il a été conquise. 
Lumumba excoriates the Belgians for decades of brutality. He declares Congo free. Vive l'indépendance et l'unité africaine. Vive le Congo indépendant et souverain. The Congolese in the room give him a standing ovation for eight straight minutes. New Congolese citizens roar outside. This moment is a tipping point for Lumumba and Africa's hope. Baudouin and the Belgians are enraged. Here's Adam Hochschild describing Baudouin's reaction. You've probably seen the film footage of that ceremony. It's an amazing thing. The expression on his face when he turns to somebody next to him and you can sort of imagine him saying, who the hell is this guy, Lumumba? He was the man who lit a whole nation on fire. For days, Congolese roasted goats spoke to the earth through their feet. Citizens poured into the new prime minister's office to get a glimpse. The Colwell brothers sang at the celebrations. But Lumumba wasted no time getting to work. The new prime minister made more bold moves. He named André Blouin to his cabinet to strategize his policy and to write his speeches. He announced his intentions of nationalizing Congo's minerals. But his boldness put a target on his back. In reality, there was little infrastructure to support his ambition. Remember, the Belgians limited their education. Congo only had a few college graduates in the entire nation. So the problems for the fledgling government started just a few days into Lumumba's tenure. When the army realized that he hadn't yet replaced their abusive Belgian general, they mutinied. Soldiers flooded the streets, assaulted Europeans, burned cars in a wild rage. The Colwell brothers had to hide. Here's Steve Colwell, Paul's older brother, recounting that experience. You'll hear a bit of Paul as well. We, we were in, a, in an apartment building on the, on the fifth floor, and... A Congolese military would be driving up and down the streets. This was the main boulevard of, of town, so everybody was coming in and out of that. Yeah. And and uh, they they were uh, in battle ready uh, with uh, guns. At one point, um, they there was a, a, a Belgian flag that was hanging over the balcony of of an apartment right next to us, and. Um, it was it was fired on by one of these jeeps, and so we were we were advised to uh, not show our white faces o- over the balcony. As the violence intensified, the Colwells had to decide if they would flee, but they decided to stay put. Literally, they didn't leave their apartment. Through the window, they saw scores of Belgians running for boats and ferries. And then there were just these long, long, miles-long cavalcades or caravans of Belgians fleeing the country. That's what we were watching from our apartment. During this chaos, 
The U.S. and Belgium made their move. They bribed leaders in the southeastern province of Katanga to secede. The minerals of the Katanga province were responsible for more than two-thirds of Congo's revenue. So the secession kept minerals in Western hands and incapacitated Congo's economy. In response, Lumumba reached out to the UN, US, and Europe for help. They all refused. So he consulted with Blouin. They decided to approach the Soviets. Now it's important to clarify that Lumumba was not a communist, but he was willing to do anything to keep the fire of hope burning. So he asked for planes, supplies, and weapons with which to take back Katanga. The Soviets agreed. This was the final straw for the Americans and Belgians. The United States deplores the unilateral action of the Soviet Union in supplying aircraft and other equipment for military purposes to the Congo. In late summer 1960, the CIA sent a cable to its head of Congo operations. They authorized him, in indirect words, to assassinate the prime minister. He was to go to Lumumba's residence and swap out his toothpaste for a tube of poisoned toothpaste. But something unexpected happened. The CIA's assassin couldn't go through with it. He couldn't extinguish this shining star. Even he got swept up in Africa's spirit of hope. He ended up throwing the vile vial into the Congo River. But that glimmer of hope was short-lived. The CIA took another route. They paid off Lumumba's rivals to remove him from power. Some of these men were even in his own cabinet. But this anti-Lumumba faction knew that they actually needed to start with André Blouin, the beating heart of his operation. In mid-September 1960, they exiled her. A mother had to flee the Congo. We were put in prison with my father and my grandmother and my brother. Yves Blouin again. Inside the prison, soldiers menaced Yves and beat up her grandmother, who eventually died from her injuries. The rest of the family managed to flee the country. With André out of the way, the anti-Lumumba faction got on the almighty radio. They dismissed the prime minister, put him under house arrest. But Lumumba was not easily held down. He managed to escape and flee across the country with his family. If he made it all the way, he could take back the country. But again, Lumumba's devotion was also his greatest weakness. During his several-day journey, he stopped many times to make speeches to rural Congolese. Soldiers caught up to him, threatened his family, so he decided to turn himself in. This time, his rivals didn't take any chances. The soldiers beat Lumumba. They shoved one of his speeches in his mouth and tried to make him literally eat his words. They soon shipped him off to Katanga, the province that seceded. There, they organized a firing squad in the bush. And there, Lumumba stood, alone in the darkness. 
Before they brought him to the firing line, he wrote a letter to his wife, his final testament. Part of the ending read, Without dignity, there is no freedom. Without justice, there is no dignity. I prefer to die with head high. The day will come when history will speak, but it will not be the history taught in Brussels, Washington, or the UN. Africa will write its own history of glory and dignity. Vive le Congo. Vive Afrique. Late into the dark hours of January 17, 1961, machine gun fire singed the air. And there, upon the scarred amber earth, lay Congo's hope this beacon of Africa's hope, lifeless at 35. Yet, his rivals were still so afraid of what he symbolized that they threw Lumumba's remains into a vat of acid. They wanted to erase him completely. Belgium and the CIA put out a press release claiming that he had died under mysterious circumstances. The news crushed André Blouin. She lost her compatriot and brother. I remember she was just sitting down on the floor in the living room and she, she just cried for days. She just was like a slumped on the, like a, a, a mop on the floor. And she, she just cried. All her dreams of independence, all her dreams of an independent free Africa were killed when they killed Lumumba, and she knew it. She knew it. The CIA press release fooled no one. Protests broke out from Miami to Mumbai. In New York, angry crowds nearly breached the UN assembly. Black days followed the black deed. But eventually, the memory faded, even for this towering figure. The world dismissed Congo as a backwards nation of suffering. It forgot what could have been about the African who was as famous as Mandela in his time. Here's historian Adam Hochschild. I think he was a sort of Mandela-like figure in the eyes of progressives around the world because of the eloquence with which he spoke of uh, Africa's needs. And unlike Mandela, of course, he was killed. But the spirits of Lumumba and Blouin have not disappeared. Uh, no, she's definitely not forgotten. She, in fact, has become a myth. She had the dream of Pan-Africanism, and she thought it would change the world and allow us to consider each other as brother and sister. For hope does not die. I personally will never give up hope. We must never lose hope that the possibility of change and, and a, better, a better time. Hope does not fade away. Vive le Congo. We still sing and we still say Vive le Congo. Hope lives in dreams and actions. Freedom. That's what we wish for Africa. Hope lives in new generations and it shall be seen again. Our sun is shining, 
the world will know. Awaking giant, Yokabiso. This week's episode of Last Scene was reported and written by Brenton Zola. And Brenton's got one more gift in store for us right after the credits, so stay tuned. Our episode was produced by Brenton and myself, Nora Sachs, your host and curator of this season. Nick White is our story editor. Mix and sound design by Matt Reed. Original music by Brenton Zola, featuring his vocal group, The Storytellers, and by Brody Kinder. Production help from my WBUR podcast teammates, Amory Sievertson, Paul Vikas, Quincy Walters, Mira Rahman, and Kristen Torres. Ben Brock Johnson is our executive producer. Many thanks to Yves Blouin, Adam Hochschild, and Stephen Paul Colwell, as well as Mermans Mosengo, Jason Tamba, and Stuart Reed for their guidance. Thanks also to the storytellers, Jerome, Gibran, Alejandro, Devin, and Keanu for lending your voices. Thanks to Gio Bard-Zero, Brody Kinder, Meredith Turk, Kid Astronaut, and Vince Duneman ferg for their sonic contributions. And to the source Marrakesh, Denver Arts and Venues, Graham Tobin, Shauna Reed, and Jeff and Sammy Kinder for their support. To learn about Brenton's book in progress and the one-man show he's creating around the Grio, visit brentonzola.com congo. To listen to more of the original music you heard today, adapted from his play about Patrice Lumumba, go to mycountrymycountry.net. If you want to know more about this episode and see show notes, go to our website, wbur.org slash last scene, and follow us on Twitter at last scene podcast. You can always pitch us your story ideas about people, places, and things that have gone missing. Just drop us a line at lastseenwbur at gmail.com. Coming up next week, a bite-sized crime story starring a tiny species of desert fish and the long arm of the Endangered Species Act. He drops the shotgun, um, he strips off his clothes, and then he slips into this deep, warm water. Um, He didn't know it yet, but that would prove to be his worst mistake of the night. Thanks so much for listening. Now back to Brenton. Hey there. Thank you for coming on this journey. I've got one last thing for you. Whenever I interview a guest, I like to surprise them with a little freestyle verse to sum up our conversation. Completely on the spot, which usually elicits reactions like this from the Colwells. Ah, oh, man, yeah. Well that is awesome. Fantastic, now Brendan. Fr- you're freestyling it. So I thought I'd share the full freestyle that I did with Eve Blouin. It's my way of spreading hope. Can you hear that music? Awesome. So this is completely unrehearsed and happening right now. Here we go. Powerful conversations you wouldn't believe. Beautiful stories here from Mama Eve. So we going in. You know I'm just flowing and growing. Showing hope because you know that the seeds are sowing. Who knows the mixed race orphan girl. The Matisse ripped from her mom. United the world. Hurled in the limelight. Saying what are you doing? Telling the whole world the tale of Andre Bluen. She said the people will come together. Tell stories. We will all unite here in Africa's glory. Feel the fire. Boy that's the African heat. 
here we dance We speak to the earth through our feet In the Congo River Words like arrows from the quiver Shivers she would give you when she stood and delivered This wasn't by luck, she was the lightning that struck She said, go to the jungle, bring the caravan of trucks They'll hear the call, 50,000 strong Big sun, big smile, we need freedom She asked Brenton, can you hear it, can you hear it? My mother had that beautiful, indomitable spirit It was the legend, it was Andre's myth And yes, who else to discuss it with? Thank you so much, oh Eve, my friend I look forward to the Eve that we meet again Thank you <laughs> It was fantastic Well done, you're a very talented man, aren't you? Well, my mom thinks so. Oh, well, your mommy's right. Mothers are always right. 